Section 19 of Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 5, by Julian Hawthorne, Editor. Section 19. Knights of Industry by Vasivalid Vladimirovich Krestovsky. Part 4. 10. An Unexpected Reunion. On the wharf of the Fontaka, not far from the Simeonovsky Bridge, a crowd was gathered. In the midst of the crowd a dispute raged between an old woman, tattered, disheveled, miserable, and an impudent-looking youth. The old woman was evidently stupid from misery and destitution. While the quarrel raged, a new observer approached the crowd. He was walking leisurely, evidently without a name, and merely to pass the time, so it was not to be wondered at that the loud dispute arrested his attention. "'Who are you, anyway, you old hag? What is your name?' cried the impudent youth. "'My name? My name?' muttered the old woman in confusion. "'I am a—I am a princess,' and she blinked at the crowd. Everyone burst out laughing. "'Her Excellency, the princess! Make way for the princess!' cried the youth. The woman burst into sudden anger. "'Yes, I tell you, I am a princess by birth!' And her eyes flashed, as she tried to draw herself up and impose on the bantering crowd. "'Princess what?' "'Princess which? Princess how?' cried the impudent youth, and all laughed loudly. "'No, not Princess how,' answered the old woman, losing the last shred of self-restraint. "'But Princess Chechevinsky, Princess Anna Chechevinsky.' When he heard this name, Count Kalash started, and his whole expression changed. He grew suddenly pale, and with a vigorous effort, pushed his way through the crowd to the miserable old woman's side. "'Come,' he said, taking her by the arm. "'Come with me. I have something for you.' "'Something for me?' answered the old woman, looking up with stupid inquiry, and already forgetting the existence of the impudent youth. "'Yes, I'll come. What have you got for me?' Count Kalash led her by the arm out of the crowd, which began to disperse, abashed by his appearance and air of determination. Presently he held a carriage, and, putting the old woman in, ordered the coachman to drive to his rooms. There he did his best to make the miserable old woman comfortable, and his housekeeper presently saw that she was washed and fed, and soon the old woman was sleeping in the housekeeper's room. To explain this extraordinary event, we must go back twenty years. In 1838, Princess Anna Chechevinsky, then in her twenty-sixth year, had defied her parents, thrown to the winds the traditions of her princely race, and fled with the man of her choice. Followed by her mother's curses and the ironical congratulations of her brother, who thus became sole heir. After a year or two she was left alone by the death of her companion, and step by step she learned all the lessons of sorrow. From one stage of misfortune to another, she gradually fell into the deepest misery, and had become a poor old beggar in the streets when Count Kalash came so unexpectedly to her rescue. 
it will be remembered that as a result of natasha's act of vengeance the elder princess chechevinsky left behind her only a fraction of the money her son expected to inherit and this fraction he by no means hoarded but with cynical disregard of the future he poured money out like water gambling drinking plunging into every form of dissipation within a few months his entire inheritance was squandered several years earlier prince chechevinsky had taken a deep interest in conjuring and had devoted time and care to the study of various forms of parlor magic he had even paid considerable sums to traveling conjurers in exchange for their secrets naturally gifted he had mastered some of the most difficult tricks and his skill in card conjuring would not have done discredit even to a professional magician the evening when his capital had almost melted away and the shadow of ruin lay heavy upon him he happened to be present at a reception where card play was going on and considerable sums were staked a vacancy at one of the tables could not be filled and in spite of his weak protest of unwillingness prince chechevinsky was pressed into service he won for the first few rounds and then began to lose till the amount of his losses far exceeded the slender remainder of his capital a chance occurred where by the simple expedient of neutralizing the cut mere child's play for one so skilled in conjuring he was able to turn the scale in his favor winning back in a single game all that he had already lost he had hesitated for a moment feeling the abyss yawning beneath him then he had falsed made the pass and won the game that night he swore to himself that he would never cheat again never again be tempted to dishonor his birth and he kept his oath till his next run of bad luck when he once more neutralized the cut and turned the luck in his direction the result was almost a certainty from the outset prince chechevinsky became a habitual card sharper for a long time fortune favored him his mother's reputation for wealth the knowledge that he was sole heir the high position of the family shielded him from suspicion then came the thunderclap he was caught in the act of dealing a second in the english club and driven from the club as a blackleg other reverses followed a public refusal on the part of an officer to play cards with him followed by a like refusal to give him satisfaction in a duel a second occasion in which he was caught red-handed a criminal trial six years in siberia after two years he escaped by way of the chinese frontier and months after returned to europe for two years he practiced his skill at constantinople then he made his way to budapest then to vienna while in the dual monarchy he had come across a poverty-stricken magyar noble named kalash whom he had sheltered in a fit of generous pity and who had died in his room at the golden eagle inn prince chechevinsky who had already borne many aliases showed his grief at the old magyar's death by adopting his name and title hence it was that he presented himself in st petersburg in the season of eighteen fifty eight under the high-sounding title of count kalash an extraordinary coincidence already described had brought him face to face with his sister anna whom he had never even heard of in all the years since her flight he found her now poverty-stricken prematurely old almost demented 
and though he had hated her cordially in days gone by, his pity was aroused by her wretchedness, and he took her to his home, clothed and fed her, and surrounded her with such comforts as his bachelor apartment offered. In the days that followed, every doubt he might have had as to her identity was dispelled. She talked freely of their early childhood, of their father's death, of their mother. She even spoke of her brother's coldness and hostility in terms which drove away the last shadow of doubt whether she was really his sister. But at first he made no corresponding revelations, remaining for her only Count Kalash. 11. THE PHOTOGRAPH ALBUM Little by little, however, as the poor old woman recovered something of health and strength, his heart went out toward her. Telling her only certain incidents in his life, he gradually brought the narrative back to the period, twenty years before, immediately after their mother's death, and at last revealed himself to his sister, after making her promise secrecy as to his true name. Thus matters went on for nearly two years. The broken-down old woman lived in his rooms in something like comfort, and took pleasure in dusting and arranging his things. One day, when she was tidying the sitting-room, her brother was startled by a sudden exclamation, almost a cry, which broke from his sister's lips. "'Oh, heaven, it is she!' she cried, her eyes fixed on a page of the photograph album she had been dusting. "'Brother, come here. For heaven's sake, who is this?' "'Baroness von Doring,' curtly answered Kalash, glancing quickly at the photograph. "'What do you find interesting in her?' "'It is either she or her double. Do you know who she looks like?' "'Lord only knows. Herself, perhaps.' "'No, she has a double. I am sure of it. Do you remember, at Mother's, my maid Natasha?' "'Natasha,' the Count considered, knitting his brows in the effort to recollect. "'Yes. Natasha, my maid. A tall, fair girl.' A thick tress of chestnut hair. She had such beautiful hair. And her lips had just the same proud expression. Her eyes were piercing and intelligent. Her brows were clearly marked and joined together. In a word, the very original of this photograph. Ah, slowly and quietly commented the Count, pressing his hand to his brow. Exactly. Now I remember. Yes, it is a striking likeness. But look closely, cried the old woman excitedly. It is the living image of Natasha. Of course she is more matured, completely developed. How old is the Baroness? She must be approaching forty, but she doesn't look her age. You would imagine her to be about thirty-two from her appearance. There! and Natasha would be just forty by now. The ages correspond, answered her brother. Yes, Princess Anna sighed sadly. Twenty-two years have passed since then, but if I met her face to face, I think I would recognize her at once. Tell me, who is she? The Baroness? How shall I tell you? She has been abroad for twenty years, and for the last two years she has lived here. In society she says she is a foreigner, but with me she is franker, and I know that she speaks Russian perfectly. She declares that her husband is somewhere in Germany, and that she lives here with her brother. 
"'Who is the brother?' asked the old princess curiously. "'The deuce knows. He is a bit shady also. "'Oh, yes. Sergei Kovrov knows him. "'He told me something about their history. "'He came here with a forged passport under the name of Vladislav Karazich, "'but his real name is Kazimir Bodlevsky.' "'Kazimir Bodlevsky,' muttered the old woman, knitting her brows. "'Was he not once a lithographer, or an engraver, or something of that sort?' "'I think he was. I think Kavrov said something about it. "'He is a fine engraver still.' "'He was? Well, there you are!' And Princess Anna rose quickly from her seat. "'It is she. It is Natasha. "'She used to tell me she had a sweetheart.' a Polish hero, Budlevsky, and I think his name was Kazmir. She often got my permission to slip out to visit him. She said he worked for a lithographer, and always begged me to persuade Mother to liberate her from serfdom, so that she could marry him. This unexpected discovery meant much to Kalash. Circumstances, hitherto slight and isolated, suddenly gained a new meaning, and were lit up in a way that made him almost certain of the truth. He now remembered that Kovrov had once told him of his first acquaintance with Budlevsky, when he came on the pole at the cave, arranging for a false passport. He remembered that Natasha had disappeared immediately before the death of the elder Princess Chechevinsky, and he also remembered how, returning from the cemetery, he had been cruelly disappointed in his expectations, when he had found in the strong-box a sum very much smaller than he had always counted on, and with some foundation, and before him, with almost complete certainty, appeared the conclusion that the maid's disappearance was connected with the theft of his mother's money, and especially of the securities in his sister's name, and that all this was nothing but the doing of Natasha and her companion Budlevsky. Very good, Perhaps this information will come in handy, he said to himself, thinking over his future measures and plans. Let us see. Let us feel our way. Perhaps it really is so. But I must go carefully, and keep on my guard, and the whole thing is in my hands, dear Baroness. We will spin a thread from you before all is over. 12. The Baroness at Home Every Wednesday, Baroness von Doring received her intimate friends. She did not care for rivals, and therefore ladies were not invited to these evenings. The intimate circle of the Baroness consisted of our knights of industry, and the pigeons of the bureaucracy, the world of finance, the aristocracy, which were the objects of the knights' desires. It often happened, however, that the number of guests at these intimate evenings went as high as fifty, and sometimes even more. The Baroness was passionately fond of games of chance, and always sat down to the card-table with enthusiasm. But as this was done conspicuously, in sight of all her guests, the latter could not fail to note that fortune obstinately turned away from the Baroness. She almost never won on the green cloth. Sometimes Kovrov won, sometimes Kalash, sometimes Karazich, but with the slight difference that the last won more seldom and less than the other two. Thus every Wednesday a considerable sum found its way from the pocket-book of the Baroness into that of one of her colleagues, to find its way back again the next morning. 
The purpose of this clever scheme was that the pigeons who visited the luxurious salons of the baroness, and whose money paid the expenses of these salons, should not have the smallest grounds for suspicion that the dear baroness's apartment was nothing but a den of sharpers. Her guests all considered her charming, to begin with, and also rich and independent by nature. This explained her love of play and the excitement it brought, and which she would not give up, in spite of her repeated heavy losses. Her colleagues, the knights of industry, acted on a carefully devised and rigidly followed plan. They were far from putting their uncanny skills in motion every Wednesday. So long as they had no big game in sight, the game remained clean and honest. In this way the band might lose two or three thousand roubles, but such a loss had no great importance, and was soon made up when some fat pigeon appeared. It sometimes happened that this wily scheme of honest play went on for five or six weeks in succession, so that the small fry, winning the band's money, remained entirely convinced that it was playing in an honorable and respectable private house, and very naturally spread abroad the fame of it throughout the whole city. But when the fat pigeon at last appeared, the band put forth all its forces, and the wiles of the black art, and in a few hours made up for the generous losses of a month of honorable and irreproachable play on the green cloth. Midnight was approaching. The baroness's rooms were brilliantly lit up, but thanks to the thick curtains which covered the windows, the lights could not be seen from the street, though several carriages were drawn up along the sidewalk. Opening into the elegant drawing-room was a not less elegant card-room, appreciatively nicknamed the Inferno by the band. In it stood a large table with a green cloth, on which lay a heap of banknotes and two little piles of gold, before which sat Sergei Antonovitch Kavrov, presiding over the bank with the composure of a true gentleman. What Homeric, Jovine calm rested on every feature of his face! What charming, fearless self-assurance! What noble self-confidence in his smile, in his glance! What grace! What distinction in his pose! and especially in the hand which dealt the cards. Sergei Kovrov's hands were decidedly worthy of attention. They were almost always clad in new gloves, which he only took off on special occasions, at dinner, or when he had some writing to do, or when he sat down to a game of cards. As a result, his hands were almost feminine in their delicacy. The sensibility of the fingertips had reached an extraordinary degree of development, equal to that of one born blind. And those fingers were skillful, adroit, alert. Their every movement carried out with that smooth, indefinable grace, which is almost always possessed by the really high-class card-sharper. His fingers were adorned with numerous rings, in which sparkled diamonds and other precious stones. And it was not for nothing that Sergei Kavrov took pride in them. This glitter of diamonds, scattering rainbow rays, dazzled the eyes of his fellow-players. When Sergei Kovrov sat down to preside over the bank, the sparkling of the diamonds admirably masked those motions of his fingers which needed to be masked. They almost insensibly drew away the eyes of the players from his fingers, and this was most of all what Sergei Kovrov desired. Round the table about thirty guests were gathered. Some of them sat, but most of them played standing, with anxious faces, feverishly sparkling eyes, and breathing heavily and unevenly. 
Some of them were pale, some flushed, and all watched with passionate eagerness the fall of the cards. There were also some who had perfect command of themselves, distinguished by extraordinary coolness, and jesting lightly, whether they lost or won. But such happily constituted natures are always a minority when high play is going on. Silence reigned in the inferno. There was almost no conversation. Only once in a while was heard a remark, in a whisper or an undertone, addressed by a player to his neighbor. The only sound was that short, dry rustle of the cards, and the crackling of new banknotes, or the tinkle of gold coins making their way round the table, from the bank to the players, and from the players back to the bank. The two princes Shadursky, father and son, both lost heavily. They sat opposite Sergei Kavrov, and between them sat Baroness von Doring, who played in alliance with them. The clever Natasha egged them on, kindling their excitement with all the skill and calculation possible to one whose blood was as cold as the blood of a fish, and both the Shadurskys had lost their heads, no longer knowing how much they were losing. End of section 19. Recording by Katie Riley. January 2010.